This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I got to say, though, one of the stories uh, and one of the main stories on the virus today that's a little maybe disturbing um, and maybe we just need to kind of understand it is about how the first U.S. virus case came weeks before previously thought. Uh, here with our daily coronavirus update, Drew Armstrong, he is team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News. As we've said repeatedly, you have got to check out all of the coverage that has been led by Drew about the virus, really keeping us informed. Drew joining us once again on the phone in New York. Drew, good to have you back with us. This story about the first case coming weeks before previously thought, my daughter and I were actually having a conversation about this. Like, you know, people said, oh, I think I had the virus. Well, why didn't we see more cases than earlier on? Help us understand this and what's the significance of this. Well, I think, you know, what what you're actually seeing here is the you know, final effect of what we've known for a long time was a really, really lackluster testing uh, situation in the United States. You know, people complain about the testing um, not being sufficient now, but if you look back to February, when we know that we were seeing the, the very first trickle of identified cases, the only testing that was happening was actually being done by the CDC. State and local public health labs did not have their own tests. When they finally got those tests sent by the CDC, they didn't work. It took essentially a month for real significant, more widespread testing to happen. And so now all of a sudden we're looking back and we're finding more and more people who did have uh, these infections um, and additionally finding some of these first, uh, first early deaths. You know, we were also at that time in the middle of a reasonably active flu season, which may have masked some of the um, uh, cases that may have been circulating early. So it's it's a hint at how much we don't know. Um, and, and that amount is definitely quite significant, I think. And Drew, you know, I, we were talking about it in my house this morning, too, because it, it feels like one of these things that really could dramatically change the narrative and the reality uh, going forward is there a positive read on this that basically says this was circulating a lot this was in the population we had a lot of people who had either mild or medium systems and as you say may have thought they had the flu but really they had this that will maybe portend a, a broader immunity or a, a broader ability to sort of deal with this in, in the short and midterm I, I wish that was the case, but if you Shoot. look at some of the research that's been um, been done out of that area, and you know, I, I'll preface this by saying some of this, some of these studies I'm about to discuss are pretty controversial. There's been some criticism of their methods, but you know, there have been findings that as many as you know, four percent of people in Santa Clara County um, and in LA. Uh, may have been um, uh, affected by this. There's some variances in those estimates, but they're around that uh, around that mark. And you know that tells you that yes, this virus was here. It was probably circulating to some degree, if we believe that those studies are accurate. It doesn't really provide any reassurances on you know things like herd immunity, which you need you know 50, 60, 70 percent um, of the population to have you know been infected and have a level of immunity 
in order to reach that. There is a tremendous amount we still don't know about that. Um, you have to have quite a bit of penetration of the virus or have a vaccine that essentially replicates that um, that process. And I don't think that there's any thinking, at least in, in, in the places where we know about that level of penetrance, um, that we're well on our way to um, any kind of immunity, of widespread immunity here. Right. So much for my optimism there, Carol. <laughs> well, see, and one of the conversations we were having is that, okay, I mean, I thought I maybe had it because some of the symptoms, but maybe not as severe. And this was back in, I don't know, was that February, February right? So I've had family say that they thought it around, they had it around the holidays. If, if, if it's the case that maybe people did have some form of it, but not the extreme or severe case, you know, should we have expected, Drew, that the numbers would have ramped up much more quickly? Or does it say something about that we do have a greater immunity than we all realize maybe to this virus? I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Well, I think what's really important to remember is that, you know, 99% of people or so um, do appear to recover just fine from this virus. You know, our immune system is very good overall at reacting this. There are a large number of people who are asymptomatic um, to it. So it doesn't have, you know, anything necessarily to do, as far as we know, with, you know, one strain or another being milder or weaker. It's just that some people get sicker than other folks. And who gets sick and, and why is one of the big unanswered questions out there. I think we have some explanation of that in terms of pre-existing conditions and age and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, we still don't really have as comprehensive an answer to that as, as we would like. Um, you know, so we, we know that that um, has been happening. I think you also look at the differences between, you know, a place like Southern California and like New York City. And you guys live here. You know what it was like before we were all staying at home. You know, everyone's packed in on subways. Mm -hmm. There's just a huge amount of population density, shared surfaces, all those things. Last time when I was in L.A., I spent the entire time driving around in my rental car. I, you know, yeah. it's not a tremendous amount of, you know, you just don't, if you think about this virus as something that transmits by people being really close to each other and touching the same stuff, the way your city is built and organized and how people interact really, really matters uh, to that. And I think that that's very, very important as people try to interpret why are outbreaks in some places worse than others. You know, if you think mm -hmm. about how people live in a, you know, widely dispersed suburb in a, you know, in the southern part of the country where I have, you know, relatives, you're, yeah. you are already practicing social distancing just in the course of your normal life compared totally. to what we do every day in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point, and, and we certainly are going to be uh, looking why, at that going forward. That's why the forward. responses are so tough, too, right? In totally. terms of every yeah. city, every state for, yeah. you know, can be very different in terms of what they're dealing with and how do you respond. Um, Drew Armstrong, thank you so much, and I do highly recommend our listeners check out all of his coverage and his team's coverage at Bloomberg.com. He's team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. All eyes on Delta this morning, obviously, and some pretty staggering numbers. It's one of those things, Carol, that you think, wow, this is going to be oh. pretty bad. And then it is, and you just think, oh, this is a tough, tough business, especially for yeah. a company that, by all accounts, had been doing very well over the past few years. We had spent some time with Ed Bastian, the CEO there, mm -hmm. uh, just last year. And he was telling, obviously, a very different story. George Ferguson joins us, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, on the phone from Princeton. All right, so George, amid all of the numbers, what's the most important thing we need to take away from the numbers from Delta and the commentary? 
Uh, well, good afternoon. I think the most important number we have to take away is that they're going to push hard to get expenses down and only burn $50 million a day by the beginning of May. And we think they'll consume $4.5 to $5.5 billion during the second quarter. And so right now, really, this business is all about trying to survive through the, the coronavirus effects here to, to some other side that we, we, we don't know when. How, you know, we got to get people comfortable with flying again. We don't know if we need, we need a vaccine. We don't, need to, we don't know if we need to put dividers between seats, but we got to survive in order to get to the point where we can put people on airplanes in much larger size so they can make money. They say demand is bouncing along the bottom. They want to finish the end of 2Q with $10 billion, which would let them burn that kind of cash for two more quarters and make it to the end of the year. So they've applied Delta specifically for a $4.6 billion loan from the U.S. government rescue package, but they might not accept it, I guess, what's being offered, because the Treasury would get some equity or at least some warrants in exchange for a loan. Should they just do that? Yeah, I, I think they're all using that as an option here, right? And so one of the, one of the um, restrictions to, that, to the loan, not the grant um, mm-hmm. package, but the loan package, is the loan can go out five years, but for the term of the loan plus an additional year, the company cannot buy back shares, pay a dividend, and it lives with, um, with uh, caps on pay. And so I, th- I think what they're all doing is they, you know, they're, I think it's a great thing, I guess. They're looking past coronavirus and they're mm-hmm. thinking, what if we get into a world here where things resume somewhat close to normal? We right-size the business. We're making money. We can't buy back shares. We, we can't uh, pay a dividend. That might un, you know, unduly restrict us. We might not be able to attract investors like another airline that could get through there. Uh, and, now, and Delta said, look, they've got, uh, I forget what timetable they gave, but I think they've got to the end of the quarter or something like that in order to actually take the loan. Um, look, I think if things look like we think they're going to look like at the end of 2Q, meaning not much better, I think they will just go ahead and take those loans. And hearing what they said, George, you know, from a consumer perspective, obviously an investor perspective, but just from the perspective of people like get on planes for business trips and family trips and things like that, what do you hear across the industry about how soon this industry looks at least somewhat healthy again? Obviously, it's unknowable largely, but what are you extrapolating from what you hear from these guys? And don't you love how he's not using the word normal? Because I don't think anybody expects normal for a while. There's no normal. Yeah, agreed. Um, So, you know, I think we're all, all the analyst community, I think everybody that surrounds the airlines, and I'm sure inside the airlines are just not talking to us about it as much, as are sort of, you know, wargaming that out in our heads. Like, how do we get people comfortable getting back on an airplane? And even Ed Bastian mentioned today about a vaccine, which, you know, is, is potentially a long way off, right? It's sometime into, into next year. And I think everybody's thinking about taking out seats or, mm. you know, blocking out seats or um, using masks or things like that. But, look, I think it's just hard to imagine demand coming back strongly before you can really get people comfortable getting in an airplane. And I think it's a vaccine because, yeah. I mean, last time I checked, the middle seat wasn't six feet wide when I, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, last time I was on an airplane. Exactly. It's been a while now, but uh, I, I think it's, that's, that's the million dollar. And, and, you know, even if you take the middle seats out, um, you know, like a typical narrow body airplane, you've got sort of six rows, three and three on each side. 
you know, the airlines are flying at 66% full. They typically can't make money at that level. Right, right. So, right. Do, you, do you envision just 20 seconds that we may be wearing, like, some kind of helmet or something? No, you know, to get on a plane. I mean, I, I think people are wargaming everything, and that's a, something they're thinking about. Maybe not a helmet. Maybe the face mask that's already on the airplane. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> that's Interesting. True. Wow. Amazing. All right. Well, we appreciate your context as always, especially on such a busy day. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And as he said, just huge, huge, you know, billion, billion dollar questions uh, that these guys are going to have to answer. We're all going to have to answer. To right. Extent. And those international flights, which are the more oh. expensive flights where they make money, are not happening. Spain's parliament, by the way, voting to extend the lockdown through May 9th. That was a headline that just crossed the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've talked a lot about the moves in the oil market and the reasons why we've seen such dramatic drops. But Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy, he writes this week in the magazine that the historic crash in oil prices that we saw on Monday to below zero, believe it or not, can be explained with one wonky word. Charlie Pellet said it. Uh, we've got Peter joining us on the phone from New Jersey. So, Peter, good to have you here with us. I feel like your story is one of those stories everybody – we've talked a lot about the energy markets, but you really explain it well why we are in today's current situation. It's not like this is something that just happened uh, seemingly overnight. It was kind of long in coming. Tell us a little bit about what you wrote about. Well, first, thanks to Charlie Pellet for that great uh, segue. <laughs> I know. What a it's setup. Good. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah, so uh, elasticity is one of those terms that you learn uh, in intro econ, which is the idea that uh, for certain products, the prices, the demand and supply do not adjust very much in response to a change in the price. And oil is a perfect example of that in the short term. So, like, look on the demand side, COVID-19 pandemic. The price of gasoline has plunged. But how many people are filling up their tanks these days? Practically nobody because we're not driving. And so we're not – the demand for gasoline has not responded to the fall in prices. Uh, meanwhile, on the supply side, you're not seeing supply falling in response to the decline in uh, price, uh, somewhat, yes. Uh, you see, uh, you know, across the shale fields, producers cutting back, but Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, are still vet producing far more than the market will bear. The cuts in production have not matched the decline in demand. Now, usually what happens in a case like that is that that you just, well, more oil goes into inventory. That's kind of the buffer. But what's happening now is we've run out of room uh, to store, and that's why we're getting these extreme moves. Well, and that storage, as you point out in your story, I'm glad you brought that up because that seems to be, or it, it is, I mean, it's not that it seems to be, that, I mean, that's really what's happening here, that this has gone on for so long. There's yes. literally no place to, to put it. It's one of these things where... I'm sure that people look at the complexities of the financial system and global trading and things like that, and they say, well, surely it can't be that simple, and it it kind of actually is, except that geopolitics (laughs) obviously have entered into this as well. You mentioned uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. So what are we to do about this and but, but wait can i just can i just jump in for a second because part of this too is it's usually futures contracts right peter that are traded yeah. and you don't yeah. you never expect to actually take the physical delivery of oil that's not usually how the markets work the futures markets but that's well, what's right yeah that's, so it depends I, there are different rules for different contracts 
for the Brent crude, which is, you know, North Sea, uh, that's settled in cash. The um, vast majority of contracts for West Texas Intermediate on the NYMEX are also settled in cash. But if you own a contract to receive oil and you have not managed to sell it before the deadline, then you have to take it. And, of course, the joke is, like, where are you going to put it, in your garage? Right. Uh, so what ends up happening is that the seller will arrive at a punitive deal with you. You'd have to pay through the nose to wriggle out of the contract because you're basically violating its terms. And that's why we saw oil on Monday go to negative 36-something dollars a barrel. This was people who were totally desperate to get out of their contract so they wouldn't be put into that squeeze. And so, so what happens next here? I mean, you, as you often point out to us, you're not an economist, but you right. you are. You play one on, you play you one on Bloomberg Business Week. Um, you are an expert on, on the world of economics. I mean, I guess synthesize this into the rest of what we're seeing, because also, by the way, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah, so like the June uh, contract, I talked to a guy named Steve Shork. I quote him in my story from Pennsylvania. He's been in the market for years. He was looking at how, how much higher the price in, of June oil was than May oil, saying that can't last. June has got to come down. Right. And he's right. It has come down. And as, I would not be surprised if as we get closer to the expiration of the June contract, we're going to see much the same kind of craziness because it's very unlikely that between now and then, which would be uh, the beginning of May, we're going to, or let's see, yeah, the, sort of late in May, we're going to, that we will see the uh, change in the supply and demand conditions. We're not going to see people buying a lot more gasoline because COVID's not going away. And it's just going to be really, really difficult for producers to cut their production enough to stop putting it into storage. So is this the beginning of the end of the oil market? No, <laughs> obviously not the end of the oil market. We're going to have oil, um, but... It's the beginning. Of the it's it's not only the beginning of the end. It's the end for a lot of speculators who are getting wiped out yeah. here. They made some really bad decisions, and a lot of them are. By the way, people who decided to go into exchange traded funds because they figured, ah, yeah, oil prices got to go up from here. They're getting killed as the one contract rolls over into another. So maybe I should ask: Is it the end of the oil age? End of the oil age. Now that's a more profound question. Well, Thank you know, you. Th- in a way, that's we've accelerated the transition out of the oil age, um, which was coming anyway, right? Right. Uh, um, And once this happens, we're certainly going to have still demand for oil, but this is waking people up to the fact that um, you you don't want to be investing a lot in new oil production now when this kind of thing can come along and slam you. Well, and it's interesting, too, you know, that ETF element of it. We talked about that at the top of the show with our own uh, Kriti Gupta, who follows these markets so closely. I mean, I also I love the kicker quote in your story. I just want to read it. Uh, Some might consider an event that happens 0.25 percent of the time to be too improbable to worry about. However, ask yourself this. I cannot get this image out of my head. How well will you sleep tonight if you know that once every year or two, someone is going to wake you up by dropping a tarantula on your face? Wow. That is Ooh, that is scary like, as right? heck. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of people these days feel like that tarantula just landed on their face. 
Yeah. Feels like it's happening more often though, man. Yeah, more than oh, a, a year or two. Yeah, but I do think to the market. But it does speak to to a a broader thing that I think we're all thinking about, which is are we entering a new era of much more I don't know, regular uncertainty, if that's such a thing, uh, Peter. And I know it's something that, that you spend a lot of time thinking about from an economics perspective because yeah. there there's academics and, and then there's reality. Yeah, you know, I have to say that very few people saw that we would have oil at negative 36-something dollars a barrel. So there's an example yeah. of a black swan event. Um, it, I've, I tend to shy away from the idea that there's more uncertainty now than there ever has been. Mm. Because I think it's a, it's a lot of – because we don't know what's going to happen yeah. next. You know, when you look back in history and say, well, it was obvious that we were going to have 9-11 or you know, whatever else. Right. No, it wasn't at the time. It came as a shock right. to us. It did. And All right. We got to go. Sorry, Peter. We love you. Thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for a special edition of Drive to the Close, a double shot because this guy deserves it. <laughs> Henry Cornell, founder, senior partner of Cornell Capital, longtime investor, a globally minded guy, and full disclosure, a friend of mine. So happy to have him on the line from Long Island. Henry, how are you? I am fine, Mr. Kelly. It's very nice to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you live at some point soon. I know, I know. Well, and uh, also, full disclosure, he has an amazing taste in wine, and uh, he and I have been able to share a glass over the years, glass or uh, maybe more than a glass. But in any case, Henry, first of all, trust your well and, and your family and all of that, your employees. What's it like running a firm uh, right now? Well, I can tell you my kids, and I've got five of them, ages 7 to 14, think this is an early summer vacation with just a drop of teleschool thrown in to keep them in line. So, you know, that is an interesting day-to-day. And then clearly, like many, many people, we are working remotely. And the idea of creating some level of efficiency when you're going call to call to call to call all day long is pretty hard. And then, you know, we have an office in New York and then one in China. And so getting on with our folks over there and just keeping it up, I feel like I should have bought stock in AT&T because we're on the phones all day, every day. Right, right. And Zoom. And Zoom and Blue Jeans <laughs> and every one of these services. Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm curious about your thoughts on the economy and what it looks like afterwards, Henry, because I think that's the thing we're trying to figure out. We're hearing about how the airlines are going to have to operate, you know, sporting events. Don't expect any kind of big sporting events for a long time. Education. You know, what's your expectations about the U.S. economy, which has proven itself so resilient through so much? Well, I think I I would you know, key off of your last comment. I, I am an optimist by nature. I always think of the glass as half empty, but I'm actually genuinely optimistic. This is different than anything I've experienced in my lifetime, from the first oil shock in the early 70s when I was in college to, you know, 87, 91, 97. This is a social 
you know, fallout that is just hard to imagine. And I can tell you, when I go to the local supermarket, people are wrapped up like mummies, and they're depressed, and it's a bad version of Night of the Living Dead. However, saying that, I was in New York City this weekend because just needed to have a few meetings in person, and when you went to Central Park, spring was in the air, people were out social distancing somewhat appropriately, and I'm hopeful that this year is going to be getting back to what the new normal is and that I believe next year you will see a real bounce. I, I think the pent-up demand of people who just want to get back to work, want to get on with their lives and enjoy themselves a bit and be productive is ingrained in our country. And I, I think we'll get back there, but this is definitely going to be a huge punch in the nose. Henry, we've only got about a minute left before we... Uh bring you back and continue the conversation. But in that minute, what are your colleagues in China saying? They say things are recovering. People are going to restaurants. People are actually traveling a bit. Factories are open. We own a number of uh, factories in China, and it was slow getting back up to producing levels. But right now we're actually experiencing, I wouldn't call it a resurgence, capital R, but a resurgence, lower R. And I think the social norms pre-virus will continue to grow there. So I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a key off of what's happening in China with how I know things can recover here. I want to get back to Henry Cornell, founder and senior partner at Cornell Capital, on the phone from Long Island, New York. So, Henry, one thing I wanted to ask you, there's a story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week, uh, and it talks about Wuhan reopening and what's involved. And it talks about use of robots and, you know, meeting rooms that uh, are kept to a capacity of just a handful of people. You don't use elevators, you use stairs. Um, there's a lot of changes. Is that going to be our world as well as we get back to I, I certainly think so for a period of time uh, I'll give you an example I flew to Chicago last week to have a meeting that I just didn't want to do over Bloomberg uh, not Bloomberg sorry blue jeans and I <laughs> or Bloomberg to... that's fine <laughs> no, I, I know there's that could a be a new show Jason you have to teach me how to use it because I'm somewhat technologically <laughs> inefficient but we we flew and we went to um, hotel by the airport and you know, I asked the lady at the desk, and she said, on a good day, we're 7% occupied. And so they gave us the ballroom. I, I, I kid you not, and it was for three people on my side and one person. And we literally sat at a table that was 20 by 20. And it was certainly much better than being on, on the telephone. But I think those types of things, until people feel safe and protocols are in place and Hopefully infections go down and vaccinations are arriving. You're, you're just going to see some strange changes. But the interesting thing is how people have innovated during this period of time because they want to get on with their life. And I think that's the important part here. People, There are some who are hiding in their foxholes, but I think people are really trying to figure out how to get on with it. And right. I, I think that's, that's the important thing, which also underscores my own optimism for how we will get back to stasis at some point, hopefully soon. Well, and as you're demonstrating with that story, Henry, I mean, there are some things, especially in your world, where you are entering into a long-term relationship in private equity. If you're doing a deal with someone, I mean, it is 
it's intimate in, in, in a lot of ways and important. And, and as I said, sort of long term, that requires a, a certain type of interaction. I mean, it, you've experienced this over many decades uh, in this business. And I do wonder, um, you know, what this portends for a business like private equity that is so relationship reliant. Well, I think every business has a very powerful element of personal relationship. Um, we're not special or different, but clearly when you're about to commit capital to someone, you want to look them in the eye, right. shake their hand, oh, my God, and actually have a meal with them and just make sure that you're all on the same karmic wavelength in order to continue to do business together. Because even in the best of times, doing things profitably is hard work. And so I do think people will need to get back there. But I also see... The technology that is seems to have come to the forefront here will certainly be more in use than it has. I mean, I've used um, video teleconferencing because it is efficient than flying somewhere for just an hour meeting. But at the end of the day, there's nothing like the personal touch. Right. I do wonder in in the world of private equity and you, as you pointed out at the early part of our conversation, Henry, you've seen cycles, you've seen crises, you've seen emerging markets like China in the late 80s and China and Japan all across Asia in the late 80s, early 90s. You practice a form of private equity, I think it's fair to say, and keep me honest here, that's a little bit different than maybe what we would ascribe to a Blackstone or a KKR. You know, they use a lot of leverage and, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion dollar deals. You're practicing a more sort of bespoke and and maybe even sort of pure version uh, to some extent. Where do you see opportunity here for that type of model, whether it's sectors or whether it's specific dislocations in this type of environment? Well, our firm's strategy has been to effectively invest in U.S. companies and take them to Asia. Um, I lived in Asia for 12 years, from 88 to 2000. Uh, A number of my partners are veterans of that era as well. And that is core to us. And the other part is we are genuinely low leverage. In our portfolio, we have no subordinated securities, no mezzanine debt, only senior positions. And before... Uh, the virus, our average leverage was, you know, 3.8 times. That protects us in an environment like that, and I think the portfolio we have will have opportunities from competitors where we can help do a rescue finance, do a merger, um, and and basically help people get out of this. You know, we're not, um, shall we say, vulture investors at all. We Mm -hmm. try to be constructive. We want to protect franchises and you know this opportunity since we are and i'm knocking on wood as i say this in a reasonably good position uh, allows us to actually be very constructive in conversations and i'll tell you in the last three weeks phone has been ringing off the hook in a very good way and we're having lots of conversations which is why some of those conversations I want in person, so I hopped on a plane last week as right. opposed to you know doing it over the phone. So, so you've made investments then over the last couple of weeks as no, a result. No, we, we've made conversations over okay. the last few weeks, um, and things are in the in what they call the pipeline. Um, right. These are these are very positive, positive things. What you know, there are so many industries that Jason and I have been talking about, Henry, about whether it's the restaurant industry, uh, watching very closely retail, which has been was troubled, safe to say, going into this. What's the fallout that you see that will well, be the result of this? Carol, that's a really tough one. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my oldest friends is one of the largest owners of various franchises in the United States, and this is the toughest thing he's ever gone through. 
because you literally have a mandate to shut your business. And how you pay your rent, how you pay the electric bill, which still comes in, uh, and how you maintain your employees is going to be very, very hard. And then, you know, there are articles in the papers today, even some of the great restaurateurs in New York City, like Danny Myers and, right. and uh, you know, and others like that, they're going to have to have restaurants that are, for argument's sake, 30% full as opposed right. to capacity. Those numbers just don't work. And so it's it's tough. I wish I had a, a crisp silver bullet response to that but you know from hotels to restaurants to any leisure activity you guys mentioned sporting events you know i'm an old bronx boy so i've got tickets at yankee stadium i can't wait to get to the stadium but god knows how many people are going to be allowed in right well and or even if we'll see baseball i mean i think it's i think we're hard-pressed to imagine uh seeing each other running into each other at yankee stadium this year henry oh, jason break my heart i know i'm sorry Maybe maybe you'll have to get on a plane to Arizona or Florida to uh, to see the Yankees. Arizona's play. been offering up, right? Come on over, yeah, teams. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, well, look forward to catching up with you again before too long, hopefully in person, hopefully over a glass of wine. Henry Cornell, really appreciate it. Founder and senior partner at Cornell Capital. And as we described, you know, someone Great who just has truly global experience, you yeah. know, for a number of decades and in real time, you know, working uh, with his partners there in China, Carol. And I got to say, I have to, uh, I do appreciate his optimism, certainly when I see a headline crossing the Bloomberg that talks about California recording 80 six COVID-19 deaths since Tuesday, and that is up 6.8%. And that's not what we want to be seeing. We want to see those numbers. Certainly the percentage increases going down. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.